0: Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is April 18th, 2018. Joining me, Eric Felton and Jim Swift of The Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. You bet. Now, so we're we're, we're three guys, and I want to start off by talking about three remarkable women. The pilot of that Southwest Airlines flight who landed in Philadelphia after the plane blew an engine that actually killed one of the passengers Nikki Haley, who had a remarkable quote yesterday, and uh, former First Lady Barbara Bush. First of all, by the way, did any of you listen to any of the audio of that pilot landing the plane? It no. Is, it, is, it is riveting. It is definitely worth your time.
1: Does, does, does she, you know, reach Sully designation
0: for, for yeah. her
1: landing, you think?
0: At, well, pretty darn close to that because uh, the woman has ice in her veins. Um, and not to mention the air traffic controllers, um, really, you you know, you have to listen very closely for them to realize, so you're you're actually, you know, is your plane on fire? Um, how, how many pounds of fuel do you have? Uh, and she says, no, it's not actually on fire, but we're missing some pieces. You can kind of imagine how that sounds in the headset. Okay. So let's just talk about uh, Barbara Bush for a moment. I'm really struck um, by the tributes that are pouring in and really what a remarkable place she has in in. Uh, First of all, in American history, being the, the the wife and the mother of a U.S. president, the the only other person who had that distinction was Abigail Adams, but also just for her class and dignity and what she represents. And it really makes for an interesting contrast to the headlines and the times we're living in. Don't you think so, Jim?
1: Uh, I think so. I mean, she she used a model first lady. And uh, loved, loved by so many people, and um, in, in a way, it's it's almost surprising um, that she outlived her husband. I think everyone kind of, you know, not to be morbid yeah. here, kind of presumed that, um, you know, she she would definitely outlive her husband, and um, very very sad. I mean, obviously, the Bushes worked together for seven seven plus decades, and uh, true true American love story. And it's very sad.
2: Although you know, I do think uh, that it's yeah, worth m- worth pointing out that um, though Barbara Bush was a dignified and classy lady, she had a certain kind of a American sort of brass about her. She was a tough lady too, and um, uh, but tough with with elegance and dignity.
0: No, I think that's well put. Uh, John Meacham says, you know. It's neither sentiment nor uh, hyperbolic, it's neither sentimental nor hyperbolic to note that Barbara Bush was the last First Lady to preside over an even remotely bipartisan capital. She and her husband were masters of what Franklin D. Roosevelt once referred to as the science of human relationships. Uh, but you're right; she was uh, she was a very tough old lady, and by far the most popular of the Bushes. And I don't think that's going to change. Um, other remarkable woman, uh, Nikki Haley. Let's talk about this. This was this was rather extraordinary. The U.N. ambassador went out on Sunday morning, as everybody listening to this podcast knows, and announces uh, the Russian sanctions that were imminent um, for the, the companies that might have been involved in the Syrian chemical a- attack. Um, the White House apparently did a flip-flop. There are no sanctions. Larry Kudlow goes out and says, well, she got a little ahead of the curve. She may have been confused. And then you had that remarkable statement. <laughs> Yesterday, from Nikki Haley, saying, "I do not get confused. I am not confused." That was that. This was a rather remarkable series of events, and uh, uh, some real, real pushback from from Nikki Haley. You could sort of see, you just sort of imagine the steely look in her eyes when she said, "No, I'm not the one who was confused here."
1: You can't stop Nikki Haley. You can only hope to contain her. uh, To you know, (laughs) quote former ESPN host. But I, I think this kind of kerfuffle is isn't is is a sign, maybe just a something that's indicative of the way this White House runs is it's flying by the seat of their their pants. And I don't think Nikki Haley made this up. I think Nikki Haley was probably told this by uh, her superiors, and she felt confident going forward to tell this. I mean, she doesn't get to make decisions on sanctions. There's no logic or rationale that she would go to the press and invent sanctions from from her seat. But then after the fact, the, the president changes his mind. His presidents are free to do, of course, but this this White House uh, seems to be making a lot of things up well, as it look, goes there, along.
2: There's there's been a longstanding principle among people who are around President Trump and his and Donald Trump when he was simply a businessman, and that is that you wanted to strategize to be the last guy he talked to, because whoever the last guy he talked to was was what he would go with. And so you wanted to make sure there was nobody hiding around the corner to sneak in and be the last guy after you were the last guy. It's tough to be the last guy the president talks to when you're up in New York at the U.N. That's a fair point.
0: Yeah. In an alternative universe, isn't this the kind of thing that people used to resign over, though, that that if you are an ambassador, your only your only stock and trade is your credibility and the president of the United States just basically cut you off at at the knees. And yet there doesn't seem to be any indication that Haley um, that uh, Nikki Haley is going to resign over this, even though obviously this was uh, embarrassing and uh, she obviously is uh, uh, not taking it lying down.
1: I I think in the old Washington, if your credibility is shot, you would resign with grace or do something in in that regard. But uh, Nikki Haley, in my personal opinion, is is sort of an anomaly. I mean, we're we're in a Washington where lots of folks uh, don't have credibility. And uh, it seems to be a daily sport of calling everyone else's credibility into question. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, why Why? Why would you if, if, if we're going to be playing this credibility game and if you feel confident in your own credibility? I mean, isn't, isn't that Trump's Washington? If you feel confident in your own credibility and your own sense of self-worth or importance and where you sit and where you stand, someone calls BS on it. I mean, screw them. I mean, <laughs> you, you still sit or stand where you st- sit and stand.
0: All right, guys. You talk me off the ledge on this because um, I know some people think this is extraordinarily good news that we're moving ahead with uh, the summit. About the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, we found out uh, that um, um, Secretary of State Designee Pompeo actually visited North Korea for a one-on-one meeting. But you know, I I can't help thinking about what we just saw with Syria and Russia and Nikki Haley—that. There are a lot of things that can go wrong here. So, what is, what is your take? I, I know the the Weekly Standard has an editorial um, Pompeo in uh, in North Korea um, that uh, suggests that that this is you know although there's some some positive aspects to this, it is nonetheless deeply worrying. So, should we be deeply worried?
2: Well, I, I think one thing not or one thing to cut against the narrative of being deeply worried is. Um, that there is at least the basic diplomatic activity going on that before you do a summit between uh, two leaders, if you can call Kim Jong-un a leader of a country, um, that you lay some groundwork, you figure out what's the topics to be discussed, et cetera. It would not be at all beyond conception that Donald Trump would just hop on a plane and show up in Pyongyang And um, so there's some comfort to be taken from there being actual, you know, basic, you know, blocking and tackling of diplomatic action that goes into something as dangerous as nuclear North Korea business.
0: Good point. Let me go back to the editorial. The immediate effect of these high level talks will be to embolden Kim negotiations between the US and other world powers always confer legitimacy and prestige on the latter. The Kim regime craves legitimacy and prestige above all else. And by sending one of President Donald Trump's closest confidants, the U.S. is giving North Korea what it wants. By agreeing to a meeting between Trump himself and Kim Jong-un, the U.S. is giving North Korea even more of what it wants. Kim will see himself as the dominant partner in the exchange, not the United States. Now, I agree with everything that Eric said, but um, that's also the, the problem that— You know, this is a huge diplomatic victory for Kim in terms of the international community, isn't it? And I I just my my confidence that this will not end badly is relatively low.
1: Uh, I think, of course, uh, both both Eric and the editorial, I think, are correct. And uh, I don't mean to to seem conspiratorial, but. uh, I'm I'm not exactly sure as the timing relates to when Trump ch- wanted to make the transition from Pompeo from CIA to State, and the status quo of uh, you know his confirmation. Uh, what I'm thinking about right now is you know Rand Paul has already said that he's not going to vote for Pompeo, yeah. and Republicans hold a one-vote majority on on the, on the on the committee of jurisdiction. There, I think we believe it was Foreign Relations. I don't think any Democrats are going to be voting for him. And so, one interesting question I have, and I don't know the answer to it, but it's just a question to ask, just aloud, is does this secret kind of Leo McGarry West Wing to Cuba meeting? Will that win over any Democrats, or is is Pompeo's nomination fated to be one of the first where they pull it straight from the committee and bring it straight to the floor because he couldn't even get a majority of, to vote for his confirmation in committee?
0: Yeah, it, it's it's hard to see the the timing of uh, of this. I mean, it, it, it's hard it's hard to see a a Senate rejection of this nominee as as good timing for anyone at this point. And I guess that would be the biggest argument. Do you really want to not have an adult like Mike Pompeo in the room? Do you really not want to have this kind of diplomacy? Do you really want to have one fewer um, adult in the room? Although he would still be in the room. Um, let's let us let us move on to what. Every, oh, and by the way, the, the other development apparently in the last 24 hours is uh, it's a never another never mind from the Trump administration. There had been a suggestion. Frankly, I never took it seriously. A suggestion that that uh, President Trump wanted to take a, a another look at the at the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, um, suggesting that maybe we go back into that. Now they're suggesting, yeah, yeah, probably not so much. So, what do you make of that? I I, I think the chances that uh, that Donald Trump was going to embrace TPP was, were were slim and none. You know, e- 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 even though. He did a little bit of a zigzag there.
1: Trump Trump has never historically been a free trader. I mean, for, right. for someone who's not known for having decades long, um, deeply held views, his, his skepticism on trade is, is one of the, the exceptions. I, my theory on this is that uh, with China and Trump going after China, he, he may have heard somewhere correctly that if you uh, take the U.S. out of TPP for all its faults, I mean, I mean, When President Obama got involved with TPP and with Korea and Peru and other trade agreements, I mean, of course, they made them more liberal and they were friendly to labor, yada, yada, yada. But if you just walk away from the table entirely, uh, that, that opens up a huge vacuum that helps China. And I think maybe someone told Trump, well, I mean, since you've just abandoned the TPP, you know, China now can uh, really exert its will in many cases. And Trump, of course, was probably very angry at that and and is trying to signal to China, like, well, m- well maybe we'll come back. But uh, I think the damage is done.
0: Well, we're in a news cycle. I, I, we're not a news cycle. I, we're in an era where it, it sometimes seems the media can only pay attention to one story at a time. And... This week seems to be the James Comey story. Uh, we have these books that uh, the eat Washington periodically including the really the the awful, in retrospect that Michael Wolf book it, you know i mean there there should be some embarrassment for the people who embrace that don't you think I mean look back at 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 the at the hysteria over the Michael Wolf book and what we've basically learned about michael wolf's quote unquote journalism and his uh, uh, his untethered uh, relationship with with the truth. And yet Washington, well, the country, can't seem to stop itself from becoming hysterical. I'm, I'm not saying that James Comey is Michael Wolf, but uh, Eric, give me your sense of the way the Comey uh, book tour is playing out so far. And we're, we're at, what are we at, day one now, day two?
2: Well, it's been actually really going on for a week already. The, yeah. the, you know, you the started having this Stephanopoulos right? thing. Yeah, so... Um, you know, what's interesting is, I, I've got to say, for all of the kind of cheap shots that Comey takes about how Donald Trump dresses, that um, he really needs to reconsider his sport coat options when he goes on late night television. Did anybody see the outfit that Comey was wearing on the Colbert show last night? Yeah, it's deeply criminal, unfortunate. criminal. <laughs> if there's any crime in any of this stuff, it's the... Dark slacks, dark shirt, light blue sport coat.
1: Well, you know, not 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 that government people are you know paragons of, of dress and fashion. Yeah. he's a G man at the end of the day, but yeah, yeah it, it was exactly. pretty bad.
2: So,
0: well, and he also should wear the tie. I mean, what's 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 without the tie? And, you know, I actually, and I said this yesterday. I have really mixed feelings about all this because I mean, there's very there's there's a lot about James Comey which is off putting, including the showboating, um, the very high personal regard that he has for 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 himself. Um, the way he's undermined his case by by taking some of these cheap shots, although in the era of Trump, criticizing somebody for taking cheap personal shots seems somewhat ironic. Um, on the other hand, this is this is this is quite a drama playing out. Um, although what's is, interesting and, and is, and it's, and it's clearly inside uh, the president's head in a very deep way.
2: It it may be, but it is it is interesting how I think both. Because of the Wolf book and people's realization of you know just how phony much of that was after the fact, I think that undermined Comey's book a bit. And um, and then you just have that uh, Comey is not um, somebody who is a, a great friend of the left, and he has not been greeted with uh, mm-hmm. uh, huzzahs by the Hillary people. And um, so the interesting thing about the Comey book is it's not really creating the kind of um, firestorm that the Wolf book did because you you have a dislike of Comey on both right and left. And,
0: you know, that, that's an interesting
2: point because I'm watching a lot of the uh, the Clintonistas
0: uh, coming out of the woodwork and uh, they're they are not prepared to uh, forgive and forget uh, James Comey. And his explanations in the book for his decision-making process – uh, don't really seem to be exculpatory. They actually seem to um, make it more questionable why he made the decision to uh, to uh, you know announce the. The clinton investigation have that bizarre press conference uh, announce no charges when that is not the role of the fbi and i think that that's hurt him as well so you're absolutely right he is getting he's in that 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 weird no man's land where he's being hit by both the right and the left um we have a little bit more i want to talk about when we come back but uh the daily standard podcast is brought to you today by tripping.com now if you've ever planned a vacation you know that finding a place to stay That'll make everybody happy for the right price can really feel like a full-time job and sometimes it feels like a crapshoot so you can actually spend less time planning your trip with tripping.com you don't have to visit a ton of sites on tripping.com one search lets you uh, compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites in one place to find the best deal on your perfect vacation rental And vacation rentals offer more than your typical motel hotel room, more privacy, more space for everybody under the one roof, more choices with fully stocked kitchens, extra bedrooms, and even hot tubs, all the comforts of home and done some. And best of all, at tripping.com, you can join the millions of travelers who find more savings with rates up to 80% less than traditional hotel rooms. That's 80% less. So if you're planning spring break in, say, Florida, tripping.com can't wait to swim at lake tahoe this summer tripping.com you're thinking about sitting on the deck of a Smoky mountains cabin tripping.com this year you can save extra time and money when you book the vacation home of your dreams with tripping.com slash standard that's t-r-i-p-p-i-n-g dot slash standard find your perfect vacation rental tripping.com slash standard um did you gentlemen happen to see what uh, what, uh, is, it, is it Kirsten Gillibrand? How do you pronounce it? Gillibrand or Gillibrand? Uh, I always thought it was Kirsten Gillibrand. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you see her tweet where she essentially said, if we can blow $1.5 trillion on a tax cut for the wealthy, why not take that money and use it to provide uh, jobs for everybody in this country? And a lot of people sort of stepped back and said, wow, she's kind of going um where e- even even a lot of liberals have been hesitant to go in the past talking about some massive trillion dollar government run jobs plan um, but why guess, why a job yeah. i mean why
2: not just give the money away
0: well exactly <laughs> um Jonathan she, she's, running. At, she's running she's running yeah, well, exactly. But apparently he's kind of still working out what they're for, what their alternative vision is, which seems to be a problem for Democrats these days. And Jonathan Shade had this article where he's scratching his head saying, why do never Trump conservatives not become Democrats? I don't know. Maybe stuff like this. Well, <laughs> well I mean,
1: it, <laughs> to, to compare a tax cut to a jobs program, in, unless a tax cut is refundable and you're, you're basically allowing people who... Uh, are to claim money that they did not earn uh, in the aggregate. Tax cuts are allowing people to keep more of their own money. I mean, that's the Republican talking point. But a $1.5 trillion jobs program is... is Taxing that money, keeping that money, and redistributing it. And so, I, I, I expect that Kirsten Gillibrand, who used to have an A rating from the NRA and used to be a somewhat not really blue dog, but semi-conservative, you know, member of the House of Representatives from upstate New York, who's now a senator, and uh, I think wants to try and out Bernie uh,
2: or her. Nobody can out Bernie, Bernie. Yeah, well, maybe that's the problem, or isn't maybe it?
1: Cory Booker. You know, yeah. I mean, she's trying to out Bernie, Cory Booker, or Elizabeth Warren, or something for twenty twenty.
2: Don't but forget did, did Kamala.
0: They, they, Ooh, do they yeah. think that this appeals to blue-collar workers in the industrial Midwest who I'm guessing would look at that and go, really? Uh, do we want another massive boondoggle? We're not in the middle of the Great Depression here. Do we really want to have the government uh, spending a trillion dollars creating you know, make-work government jobs? That doesn't seem like a winner to me. Yeah,
1: if, if they're union members and the money comes to them, I think they probably don't give a shit and they're happy the money's coming to them. <laughs>
0: Uh, any thoughts about Mitch McConnell's comments yesterday that, uh, no, he's uh, not ever going to bring that uh, bill to protect uh, Bob Mueller to the floor of the Senate? Uh, uh, his, his argument uh, is that, look, why, why have a vote on it? Because the president's never going to sign it. And, of course, now they're coming under a lot of criticism for being silent in the face of this threat and therefore complicit. Uh, why do you think Mitch decided to take this bullet for Trump? On this issue
1: i mean i think you know mitch mcconnell's a practical and pragmatic man and he's right that president trump would never sign something that would uh take away his authority i mean not that the the president is like a known scholar of executive authority or anything like that but i mean if, if you're looking at this from a political standpoint it's it is trying to get republicans to go on record to uh defend the independence of bob moeller and in his investigation uh, and to prevent Trump from doing it. And, you know, of course, Mitch is, is happy to take that bullet and say, not wrongly, the president would never sign this. This is a huge waste of time. Um, but I mean, it's it's like one of those sense of the Senate resolutions that are all about messaging. Uh, but McConnell has basically taken off the pawn from the table of the ability of Senate Republicans to message that they will uh, back Bob Mueller and they, they, they want an independent investigation to continue. And I'm not even sure that uh, if Mitch McConnell were to grant a vote, it would even get many Republican votes.
0: Yeah, it would have been at uh, least really sy- symbolic. Also, he uh, he shut down he shut down the Senate and not taking a vote on the so-called rescission package, which would have uh, given Republicans at least a fig leaf um, after that 1.3 trillion dollar omnibus bill. There was a, a lot of uh, buyer's remorse about that, and uh, so the the House. You know, moving ahead, can we can we cut some of this spending, but that 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 turned out to be a non-starter. Eric, do you have any thoughts on that because that struck me as a the perfect, not necessarily good public policy, but the perfect political answer to the "Oh my God, why did you guys just blow up the deficit
2: well i I don't think that there's really much in the way of fiscal conservatism left in Washington. I mean, it's been mm-hmm. a talking point for so long and uh, an action point. Uh, just about never um, and I, I do think that just as you know this this may sound silly in a town that is so rife with uh, distrust and and mutual hatred of uh, different political parties but it is something to be considered that if you make a deal and mm-hmm. the deal is we're going to have all this spending and you're going to give us what we want. Um, that um, maybe it's a not a great idea to come back a few weeks later and say oh by the way the part of the deal that we were supposed (laughs) to deliver we're taking that back now Um, i think just in terms of in the hope that you could have some proper legislative um, activity uh, you have to build some trust somewhere that if you make a deal you stick to your deal
0: I i think that's an excellent point born again virgins
2: so, Eric, I want to go back to this because I, I completely agree with your point the, about the sport the, the coat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I will definitely agree with that. I mean, let's, let's put a plus one on That's, that. I'm
2: just uh, making sure we've got our prior, priorities straight about you on, know what. On this to... issue of
0: fiscal conservatism, I mean, I, 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 I'm, i gonna admit, I'm, I'm wrestling with this because I'm here from Wisconsin and probably interviewed Paul Ryan a hundred times, only slightly exaggerating, talking about the national debt and the deficit and all of this, and now we're finding out that. Um, fiscal conservatism just has no constituency at all in Washington. So I, the question is, was, was it ever for real or was it just a talking point? I mean, I, I, I get hammered on all of this. Do you know, did Republicans mean it when they said there's this massive debt bomb heading our way and it's going to be the greatest intergenerational transfer of wealth? And then they get into power and we're looking at trillion dollar deficits year after year after year. We're looking at, uh, you know, what, $28 trillion in national debt by the end of the decade. I mean, wow, that's not what Republicans said they would do if you gave them
2: control of the federal government, right? Yeah, no, they didn't mean it, and they have never meant it. And, um, you know, what's interesting is that both parties, for the most part, campaign to the right of where they govern. So lots and lots of Democrats pretend that they're conservative or moderate, um, and then when they get to Washington, they vote hard left. Um, and lots of Republicans uh, make out that they're solid conservatives, and they be, turn out to be squishes once they get to Washington.
0: So they never meant it,
2: but that whole Tea Party thing. You know, that we, well, the we, Tea we Party get... meant it, but, yeah. but how, many, how many senators and congressmen do we have who are really Tea Party people?
1: And and where are those Tea Party people now? I mean, cheering Trump. How, how many how many of the true you know people who are taxed enough already, who you know were protesting Obamacare and uh, you know really swept up in the grassroots movement? I mean, I I think a broader question is is what percentage of those people were new entrants to politics that really believed in the cause or. Versus what percentage of them were people who were already rabid partisans who uh, were just ready to put on the fresh new t-shirt and uh, accept the the most recent rebranding?
0: Well, let me put a, a slightly different twist on that, but th- th- that's a good question. but because i I remember um, the tea party, the original tea party. Uh, brought a lot of people who had not been involved in politics before. And there was a, and of course, there was some astroturfing. Um, but but there was, there was a genuine, I think, idealism behind many of the people that turned out. But then what the Tea Party morphed into, where you had the careerists and the grifters and the various other organizations that assumed the mantle of the Tea Party that were not necessarily the same folks as the ones who showed up with you know the baby strollers at the big rallies. I mean those people I think genuinely did care about some of these issues, but I don't know what what the Tea Party was a year after that or 2 years after that when you start to see some of the people that you know were you know had decided hey we can cash in on this by uh, by sending uh, fundraising letters all in caps to this fundraising you know there there is always this sort of revolving door between
1: nonprofits, the government, Campaigns and other sorts of things, but it's it's always interesting to see where people go. And if you had told the Tea Party people way back when that establishment rhino Marco Rubio was going to have this chief of staff run by Heritage Action, his former head, you know, I think a lot of people would have scratched their heads.
0: Yeah, but 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 before that though, Marco Rubio was the Tea Party candidate. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I can I can remember that. the the earth uh. The earth shifts. It, yes, and it and it keeps shift and it keeps shifting. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow.